Hello everyone, a warm welcome to all of you. My name is Hitendra Wadwa and you are in Intersections. And our focus here at Intersections is really integrate life and leadership to bring together various streams of wisdom and insight that will allow us to dissolve boundaries and to approach our full potential again in life as much as in leadership. Today, it is a very special pleasure for me to have with us a wonderful guest who will be illuminating us in many ways on a topic, I think, close to many of our hearts. Before I get to really talk about this whole theme of maximizing people's potential in today's time, which is what we're going to be talking about, let me introduce to you our guest for today, Raghu Krishnamurti. Raghu is the ex-chief human resource officer of GE. He's had a storied career at GE over a number of years. Prior to that, he has been, for example, the CHRO of GE Aviation, the CHRO of GE Healthcare, the Chief Talent Officer, Head of Crotonville, the Leadership Development Center. He has been named as one of the top 50 Asian Americans in the world of business in the recent past. And Raghu is also someone who is an insatiable, curious learner all the time. And so um, one of the things that Raghu's done in recent days is, in fact, to enroll in the doctoral program at University of Pennsylvania, where he is now, you know, having practiced and lived and experienced leadership, he is now learning leadership and studying and exploring the frontiers of leadership. I invite Raghu into our mix as well. Raghu, warm welcome. Thank you for joining us. And Hitendra, thank you very much. And thank you, everyone. It's a real pleasure to be with you. You know, these are uh, times when things are very dark for all of us, right? For instance, in Chicago today, there's going to be six inches of snow. It's the sign of times. And there is a huge need for all of us to have a sense of belonging and not just belonging, actually a sense of mattering. By including me in this platform, I feel that I matter at least a little bit for the moment. And I'm grateful to you. Yeah, no, thank you, Raghu. And so our focus today is going to be to create this intersection of head and heart to recognize that all of us, as you're saying, Raghu, are facing challenging times. And perhaps the greatest of those challenges is the kind of really heart-rending trade-offs we sometimes have to make between family and work, between safety and you know, security, between kind of earning a livelihood versus really living a life. And um, I know this is an area that you and I have had some very stimulating conversations on about your perspective. I want to bring you in to that very soon. And uh, Raghu, so you had this uh, storied academic and professional career. I imagine that uh, the roots of this must have come from a very young age when people recognized the inner genius in Mr. Raghu. So fast, Hitendra, not so fast. My past has been less glorious than what you make out to be. Uh, when I was a child, I was an extremely poor student. In fact, I barely managed to scrape through from class to class. But there was a point in time when I had to make a call. I had to make a call whether I'm going to stand still or move forward. And this, it is one of life's intersections, right? When you are faced with the fact that you could be the last in the class, you could be the person who's going to be coughing and spluttering your way through a career. And that's a moment of realization that dawned on me that I need to do something better. And I was fortunate. I had the ability to go into a premier institution. I had great uh, support from my parents. So it was a transition, not necessarily an easy path. But I'm grateful for what happened. And therefore, I'm grateful for my alma mater and my 
companies that I work for so that they have given me a perspective in life and they've enabled me to take on a journey which I feel has been really privileged and blessed. Wow, thank you for sharing that. It's a, um, it's a great testament to the uh, power of what we call the growth mindset that um, you know, regardless of where we are at a certain moment in our career and our life, who knows what the full hidden untapped potential there is in one of us, right? In any of us, even where you reach the fact that at this stage, you're engaging in the next level of reinvestment in your, in your intellectual and professional sort of life through the doctoral program is another example of that. Who knows where you're going to be five years from now, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's beautiful. So let's turn to one dimension of who you are. I've had the privilege of having you in my class at Columbia Business School. And uh, one thing I noticed uh, very early in your interactions with my class is that um, whereas in my case, my aspiration in the class is to build a close-knit community by getting to have everyone unified under one, in a sense, like energy, right? And that's the energy that all of us are sort of like experiencing as a kindred and connected spirit. In your case, I noticed that you actually did something really beautiful in getting to form that same connection by doing the exact opposite. And so this is a beautiful intersection that is happening right here. And that opposite thing that you did was to actually walk around the room, get to know as many of the students as you could in the breaks, prior to the class, at the end of the class, and then interweave and integrate you know, that comment from that person, that story from that person, that concern or issue from that person, you know, etc. As though you have known them always at an individual one-on-one -on -one level. That to me was remarkable as a quality that you possess of being really attuned at the very human level with every individual in the room. So um, now, whereas academically perhaps you've grown over time, is this quality of caring and compassion and just like curiosity and concern about people is that not something that just people have or don't have i mean like where did it sprout out in you i can't really answer the question whether people have it i certainly can say in my case i learned it i'm going to give you an example of what happened to me a few years ago i was in the c-suite and we had made some really tough calls about the organization we had decided to lay off many people. Uh, we had decided to sell some businesses. We had decided to restructure the organization dramatically and drastically. And we had done all this, announced it publicly to our employees, to the media, to our investors. Uh, and there was a positive reaction, at least from the external world. But what we had forgotten to realize was that the emotions in the organization were still very heavy. Soon after the announcement, we went to actually have a panel discussion with our employees and all hands to all the employees across the world. And what I noticed was when we went through the panel discussion, me and my team members on the panel were actually celebrating the fact that we have done what we said we would do. And uh, we're perhaps joking around with each other. That did not go well with our employees because while we had moved on to the next level, the employees were still heavy with the information that many of their jobs are going to go away. They're going to get restructured and they were not able to recognize the fact that, hey, um, the folks in the senior level perhaps are at a different plane. And we uh, were not able to appreciate the fact that these folks still needed time to really appreciate, digest, come to terms with what was happening to them. And I realized at that point in time when I came back that we had missed the mark completely. And from there on, what I've tried to do is um, be in the shoes of the employees, uh, actually try and listen to them very deeply. Because when you listen deeply, 
life unfolds before you and you recognize and realize that people are looking at the world through their lens and unless you look at their world through their eyes you're not going to be an effective leader you may be holding the position but you're not going to inspire them and engage them so that made me realize that i had to actually get to know people first before i do anything else earn their trust be in their shoes empathize with them so that you are in a position to frame your reference according to what they need not according to what you have yeah thank you for that that's um, that's a powerful story i really appreciate your sharing that ragu so let's turn to the heart of our conversation we are in a state of siege as managers as leaders as parents as professionals as human beings and there are just so many different factors that seem to have come together in creating this perfect storm ragu um when you think about the uniqueness of the challenges that are being foisted on us today what are you know what are some of those dimensions of that challenge let's just take a minute or so to just get commonly grounded into the challenges that we face today both in work and in life what are some of those key ones for you let me start with something really personal hitendra i'm in chicago i have two daughters who live in new york city i haven't um, seen them over the last 3 4 months and as new york becomes a hot hot spot for uh, covid-19 one thing me and my wife really miss is not having our children with us they're grown up but still they are our children and if i only had the ability to reach out and hug them i'd be so grateful to god right now and that's something we regret every day not having them here with us and i'm sure many people are experiencing that Uh, of course many people's burdens are a lot more uh, than mine or for that matter yours we are lucky but as people um, navigate through a world that is going very dark the tunnel that is very dark with not necessarily knowing what's going to come out at the end of the tunnel i think it's uh, weighing heavily on everybody's minds so the fact that uh, people have lost jobs uh, there's a dual crisis happening right now there's a health crisis and an economic crisis and both are in an exponential context and both are actually having opposite curves so as people go through navigating both these extremes they are trying to make sense of what's really happening what's happening with reference to our jobs what have what's happening with reference to our health what is going to happen to our loved ones uh, how are we going to navigate through this what are governments going to do what are organizations going to do where does that leave me so it's it's a profound pause and hopefully it moves from a pause to becoming a positive reset but we don't know that so when the unthinkable becomes thinkable life is altered and we are going through a life altering moment right now by the way one of the things you will see with ragu is that he has very quotable quotes and he just kind of like makes them up in the moment <laughs> i don't know how you do it ragu but this idea that when will we go from the pause to the positive yeah. i love that right from the pause to the positive that that's that's beautiful What do you do when you're furloughed? Is it real that we are actually going to come back when the world actually seems to have just like you know totally shut down? Uh, some organizations are um, doing some very interesting things right now, and I do believe that it's a, it's a way of thinking about and framing the issue. Virgin Atlantic, for instance, what they have said to their employees in UK is many of these flight attendants are trained in emergency care, so they have followed their employees. But what they have told NHS, which is the National Health Service there in UK, saying that our employees are trained. If any of them are willing to volunteer to help out, would you accept them? And NHS came back and said absolutely. Most of the employees who have followed 
accepted that opportunity because they had something to offer to the world during times like this. And NHS was a perfect opportunity for them to display their skills. I think what is great in times like this is for organizations to move beyond skill maximization to some kind of a moral elevation, which will at least keep people whole during times when they are followed. That's beautiful. So, um, so let me just quickly like summarize what I see, uh, some of the dimensions of the challenge, because I think it's just valuable for us to pay homage to the fact that this is a moment like no other in our generation. And I say our generation, everyone from millennials to boomers, we're all one generation right now with regard to this, right? A, there is this massive economic collapse. B, there is this massive uncertainty about the future. We don't know how long this is going to last and whatever. C, there's like a global health crisis, this fall of gloom as to when will this potentially come and hit my family or me, right? D, there is this um, sense of, I would also say, let me throw that in, a sense of concern that the institutions we have trusted, the leaders we have trusted, the experts we have trusted, right now we cannot really even lean on them. I mean, who is the figure who is holding a hand and going to make us walk through and out of this crisis? There is a sense that we really don't know, you know, who to turn to for that reassurance and guidance out of this. And then we have to be working from home. And then it's not that home has become the office. The home has also become the school. And now our kids are at home as well. And those who were used to, for example, the care and love and support of domestic help, many of us don't even have access to that anymore. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. Okay, Raghu. So you have mentioned one path out of this, which is the path of an uplifting meaning, an uplifting purpose. And you gave this beautiful example of Virgin here. And you mentioned that, look, at a time like this, there is, what do you call it? An elevation of the model. The whole thing is, are we looking for getting the best out of our employees? Or are we looking at getting the most of our employees? Organizations that look at getting the best out of their employees are the ones that are likely to recover the fastest. And one of the ways to get the best, you're saying, is infuse them with a great sense of meaning and purpose for the moment. One of the things that reminds me as a principle from from the work that we do at Mentora Institute, Raghu, you've been an honored sort of contributor to that work as well, is the energy of purpose. And one of the key lessons in that energy of purpose is that don't get stuck with a certain goal because as conditions change in the world, you may need to revise your goals. Your core purpose is the same to be of service in a way that is unique to the gifts and strengths that you bring. But the outer expression of that purpose may need to constantly adapt to the moment. So there might be a moment in human history where version employees have to do X, Y and Z. And there is this new moment in history where for a certain period of time, they mean need to do A, B, and C, right? That capacity to fluidly pivot the goals while still staying true to some core purpose of relevance and service to the world, right? Isn't that sort of, I think, maybe a lesson we can learn from that? Yeah, I think very clearly because uh, I'm wondering loudly whether uh, it's time for us to start thinking more about meaning than mission because mission has a destination. When we are unclear about the destination, all we can do is make sense of here and now, and that's more meaning. What is it that I can think of now that makes some significance, makes a difference today? And that's all we can do. Today, I was um, reading about an old 99-year-old man in UK. His name is Tom Moore. He's a World War II veteran. 
what he decided to do at his age was walk 100 laps uh, around his garden to raise money for NHS. And by doing so, he raised $15 million. So even a man who's 99, if he has the determination, can make a difference in times like this. At his age, he's going to be close to 100. So I think those are stories that inspires us, saying that everybody has a moment to make meaning and make a contribution in times like this. It's not easy. It's not easy, especially when you're worried about a meal on the table or um, issues of children's school or your health. You are not thinking about higher level, higher order issues like Maslow's hierarchy. But it, the point here is, I think what we are witnessing is a moment in our lives where the social solidarity is coming to play a lot more effective if effectively than the individualism. So I'm actually quite optimistic about the residue effects of what we are going through. But what we are going through is still very, very heavy and difficult for most of us. If you're a manager, if you're a leader, if you're an owner of a small business, etc., there is today this really heart-rending situation that you are thrust in, which is that you've got to make decisions which are right for the business, which are right for the organization. You cannot run the risk of driving the organization to the ground at a time when, let's say, business has screeched to a halt. On the other hand, how can you do that, right, when, um, when you actually find that some of these things that you will do will inflict pain on your people and will result in things like what we're seeing some of our friends talk about here, furloughs and perhaps layoffs and, you know, et cetera, right? And so, Raghu, when we're talking here about maximizing people's potential, really engaging and respecting the humanity in our teams and organizations, how does one do that when one is having to make some of the harshest human resource decisions today? Yeah, I'm going to go back to something that I did not do right. In the late 90s, when Asia went through the financial crisis, I was uh, looking after um, many parts of Asia. One of the countries I was responsible was Thailand. And the Thai baht deval uh, devalued overnight, and we had to lay off thousands of employees. In fact, uh, that, that period, I had to lay off about 2,000, 3,000 employees. In Thailand alone, I had to lay off about 800 employees. I remember doing that. I I was still a young HR professional and I was, was very keen on impressing my leaders with what I knew and how I could do things like that. So I put a Six Sigma plan, total Six Sigma plan of how to lay off employees. We had everything planned. I went on the day when we were supposed to lay off. In the morning, we started calling people in, handing them the equivalent of pink, pink slips. In the afternoon that, that day, I heard sirens come in and I was uh, really getting distracted because as we were trying to do what we needed to do, the sirens came closer and closer. In fact, actually, the sirens stopped outside the door. And then I went to inquire what really happened. At that moment, one of my colleagues told me that an employee that I had laid off earlier that day couldn't bear the thought of going back home without a job. And he jumped out of the sixth floor window to try and commit suicide. And I must say that uh, that took the wing out of a bag for a minute, I realized that it was uh, the fact that uh, I was doing this wrong. I People, especially in those days, even now, we're making difficult choices between livelihood and life. And in most cases, livelihood was life. And if you didn't have livelihood, this particular gentleman thought he wouldn't have a life. And he had a family. Fortunately for us, he fell on the awning and he was seriously injured, but he didn't die. A few days later, my manager called me up and he gave me my performance appraisal. And for the first time and the last time in my life, I've got a I got a development needed on my appraisal. 
which is the lowest you can get on my appraisal. Uh, and my manager told me, if you didn't take care of this situation, if God forbid, if the individual had expired, that would have been haunting us forever in our lives. Uh, you were responsible for making sure that you not only took people out the way the organization wanted, it to, wanted you to do, but also did it with grace and you did not show grace. And this is a lesson that you need to learn from here. So my lesson from that point onwards was sometimes we have to do the uh, tough things, right? We have to take tough action. But if you don't do it with humanity, with humility, understanding the situation, understanding what it means for the other person, you perhaps are not going to be relevant in your as a professional. On the contrary, I read something that inspired me two days ago. This is a restaurant owner in Tennessee. He had to lay off a lot of his employees. But when he did that, he also told them, listen, I know this is going to be difficult times for you. Here is what I'm going to do for you. On Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, I'm going to have the chefs come in and prepare food. Those of you who need it can come and pick up the food anytime you want to. What it told me was he had to do the difficult thing but he allowed employees to have that dignity, saying that I'm still here for you and hopefully when the lights come on, I'll have you back. But meanwhile, this is the limited offering I can give you in times like. I think we need to really think through how we come through as individuals, as leaders, because if you look at the definition of leaders, it is about how do you expand other people? How do you make others' lives better? And this is the moment we are really testing. Yeah, that's... Um... Thank you. Those are two really beautiful and powerful stories, Raghu. Um, really appreciate you opening up on something which must have for you been um, a remarkable, a remarkable sort of shock, but also then over time uh, growth. You know, the, the, the second story you shared about the, the restaurant owner reminds me of a alum from Columbia Business School who shared the story. He, um, you know, leads his family business. And he said, after many, many decades, we had to finally do some layoffs. This is not in coronavirus times. This is a few years ago. We had to do some layoffs because it was just necessary for the survival of the business. And we'd never done layoffs. It was heartrending for us to take people from our family and invite them to leave. And he said, but we had to do it for the future and, you know, et cetera. And he said, what I did at that time is I went to each of the managers who had to lay some of their people off. And I told them that today, that is what you're going to do. But here is what you're going to do in three months from now and six months from now. I want you to reach out to each of the people that you had to lay off in your team. And I want you to invite them out for lunch, one-on-one, -on -one, go and have a lunch with each of them. And when you do, check in on them. How are they doing? How has life progressed for them? How has their work search gone for them? And is there anything that you can do or we can do practically right within the confines of our resources to be of some service to them and he said that just gave me you know just so much more of a sense of peace even though it was a painful move to do mm -hmm. so um, one of the things i'm noticing in your stories and in this story is um that we have to break ourselves out i, I wonder what you think of this Raghu, of a mindset which is that um we can either be loving and nice and kind and happy or when time gets tough times get tough and we have to make a decision on who to let go versus who to keep, who to promote versus who to not, who to give a bonus to versus who to not, etc. That clearly the people who are not going to get any of this, they are not going to like me. And so I should withdraw my heart. When I have conversation with them, engagement with them, I should bring security guards and I should do this. I should withdraw my heart because clearly they're not going to like me. And I think like one of the one of the things that one sees in some of these stories is that there's no reason to think that way. There is research done by one of my colleagues, Joel Brockner at Columbia Business School, a professor, right, where what it shows is that in situations like this or restructuring, et cetera, employees are much more likely to support management if they feel the process has been fair to them. 
even if the outcome was negative to them. So if some of them had to leave, even those people will be more at peace with the outcome and will support management what they did as long as they understand the logic of the process. What do you think about this idea, Raghu? Because I'm only an, you know, kind of a researcher on this. You are a living practitioner of this. What do you think of this idea that that journey that we're talking about begins from within, begins from a place which says, do not withdraw your heart, even in the toughest of moments. Again, it reminds me of another story. You learn through life's hard knocks. And as an HR manager, oftentimes you encounter situations where you end up uh, making some hard trade-offs. I remember one instance um, when we went through the Great Recession, we actually had to cut a lot of costs. And me and the CEO and made sure that we cut out every conceivable cost, right? Some of them big ticket items, some of them really small ticket items. One of the items we cut, down, cut off was, of course, fruits in the office, but another one was flowers. We cut off, cut off all flowers in the office. It's going to seven, save us about seven hundred dollars a month. But in times like this, we need to set an example, and every pike, every penny counts. So we cut off flowers. And this happened on a Wednesday, and I was uh, coming back to the office on Thursday and Friday. Thursday, I didn't see flowers. Friday, I saw flowers back, and on Monday, I saw the flowers back again. And this time, I got very furious. I said, "How dare the organization defy our instructions of?" not having flowers. We are cutting costs. We need to show the world that we are tightening up bells. And what ended up happening was um, I told my assistant, bring the person who's guilty. And two hours later, she bought me the person, the, a tiny young, a tiny lady uh, who was our janitor. So Tony is our name. So Tony came into the room and uh, I, I asked Tony, Tony, didn't you read the memo? Didn't you see the fact that we are cutting costs? And how dare you ask the flower uh, florist to bring the flowers again? Uh, she paused for a minute, thought about it and looked at me in my eye and said, actually, those are not flowers from the florist. These are flowers from my home. I bought them. Uh, and the reason I bought them is uh, I know that the company is going through a very tough phase. I know that you folks are working very hard. And I thought the least I can do is put those flowers so that sometimes if you have the time, if you have a minute, you can stop and smell the flowers. Because what is what is flowers? It's a symbol of hope. And I thought I'll give you a little bit of a boost by putting those flowers so that you have hope and you need it. She walked away with that statement. I never felt more ashamed in my life because I know we have to cut things. We have to manage our budgets and whatnot. But the symbols of hope and motivation that people look for need to be there because without that, there is no life. Without heart, a leader is a tyrant, right? So I think for us to be effective leaders, the lesson I learned from Tony was you've got to be a better human first before you're a better leader. Thank you for that, Raghu. Um, Raghu, next thought, I think maybe that we should take. Let's get really, really practical about it, right? So here we are. And let's say I'm managing a team and they're all sitting at home, right? I mean, that's the new normal. And yet, is it really normal? It is true that businesses have with remarkable speed, embraced Zoom and moved into a work from home situation. Um, I was just talking to one of our clients in the tech space and they mentioned how they just took a hard look at what was happening in various geographies, realized that the world was going to get into a lockdown mode very soon. And four days before some major lockdown news started to get announced by various governments in four days before that they had anticipated planned and executed the move of a hundred thousand people from the offices 
and service centers to working from home. I mean, that is a remarkable adaptation for a business to make at such scale. So that's it. Is it really working? Or, you know, is there more that we need to do to be sensitized to some of the unique situations and challenges that we are thrusting our people into when they have to work from home? It's a great question. I think for a long time, working from home was an employee benefit, right? And people chose. And then more recently, of course, it's become an organizational necessity. As long as it's an organizational necessity and people have an option to go back to the office, I think we'll still be in a position to uh, manage this. However, if many CFOs, and they're thinking about this now, make this a productivity initiative and take this for granted, then we are stuck. You're right. Itandra, you're right in terms of the fact that uh, organizations that are entrenched in bureaucracies overnight have been able to uh, pivot quickly and make this happen, right? So things that uh, you cannot do, if you imagine if you were to try and institute working from home, you have to get the IT guys agreed, you have to go to the board, you have to get the employees to agree. But we have been able to do that very quickly. Same thing has happened on empowerment. You can, since you cannot control from the top, hierarchy has become hierarchy. So you are now have to empower people. There's no other option. So under such circumstances, it is good as a response for now. But long term, I want us to reflect deeply. There is a story about an organization. Uh, Nicholas Bloom, who's done a lot of research from Stanford University, shared the story. It's an organization that invited about 1,000 of its employees to work from home and said, whoever wants to work from home can do so. 500 of those people opted to work from home. After six months, they asked the same question again. Only 40% agreed to remain at home. The balance 60% actually wanted to come back to office. And there are several reasons for this. At least in my case, home is my inner sanctum. It is the place I am who I am. And for office to come into that space, you are looking not just the fact that you have the work come in, but in some cases, some supervision and surveillance come in as well. My question is, as long as you choose for it to come in, it's voluntary. But if it is imposed on you, you actually have an unwanted guest at home. And we have to think twice about making that happen because your home is your temple. That is where you and your family receive the warmth, the connection, and also it's the place where you, you have your dreams and aspirations uh, embodied there. It's symbolic, it's complex. Working from home means that you are actually imposing a formality to the whole equation. And that for me is a huge issue for work-life balance. Because what ends up happening is work may end up taking precedence in a context where you have children, where your partner is also working. And unfortunately, it upsets the whole balance. If organizations are willing to make life work balance, take dominance over work life balance, then it's OK. On the other hand, if they impose it on everyone, it's going to backfire. And we have to think through very carefully we, before we institute as a policy. Thank you, Raghu. Um... Do you have any lesson or message for us today as to um, when home starts to blur and intermingle with work, which you and I, we've seen that all the time right now, isn't it? I mean, and I'm so, so many of our friends here as well. These moments where you're at home and kids start to come into the screen and sit in your lap and et cetera. Is there, a, is there a shift there that we need to make in some of the kind of like expectations and dynamics and all of that? No doubt about that. I think uh, the realization for me, at least, is the fact that life takes priority. You keep in mind what's very clear is going through a phase like this. If you look at the wider meaning that this event is teaching us is work as a, as, as a concept shrinks 
in comparison to rest of the issues that you need to worry about. So organizations need to understand and appreciate that. And they're doing that. In all fairness, I think there is far more acknowledgement of the fact that family is going to become part of the frame of the camera in the equation. And keep in mind, here is some statistics you need to know. And a, a report came out about from our labs about uh, remote working. If you really look at people who work from remote office or from home office often, they're actually the senior people. Those people who have the ability of having a private space or having a separate office space where they are undisturbed. Most people don't have that luxury. They actually have to end up coming to work because of the fact that it gives them a different terrain and there they're able to concentrate. That terrain goes away and now you're working from home on the bed or on the dresser. It all intermingles. And you have to be careful about making sure that you acknowledge the boundaries and allow the employees to separate the boundaries. These are some new competencies that are required. In fact, one of my researches right now I'm doing is that what are competencies required for people to permanently work from home? And what are competencies that managers need to display in, in uh, having people work from home? So my lesson is we got to be, make sure that we acknowledge the limitations of people working from home and take that as a factor of what it means for our work and productivity. That's beautiful, Raghu. I'm very inspired by what you're actually just talking about. So um, I, I want to actually build on that with a couple of thoughts. But just in the spirit of, again, just sharing what's happening in the community, in the world, more broadly in a shift of consciousness, right? You know, I've often felt over the years that there is such an artificial divide, you know, that we are made between uh, life and leadership, between uh, public and private, between uh, home and work, as if we have to dress in a certain way and come to work and comport ourselves in a certain way. And then we can kind of like go back and kind of like be ourselves, right? And here we are finding it's impossible <laughs> to separate those two worlds. Maybe subtly so, there is a shift of consciousness that will happen. And there is a greater amount of humanity that will come into our, into our work yeah. consciousness as well. Yeah, let me react to that. I think I have a I have a sister who's a school teacher. And one of the things she told me was when a child comes to the school, especially younger children, they are not just coming there to study, but they're bringing with them their nu nutritional issues, uh, their abuse issues, and so on and so forth. And unless a leader recognizes that into their thinking or a teacher does that, the teacher is not going to be effective in communicating the lesson plan. I think the same thing holds true for leaders. Even when we get back to office working, we, I think hopefully we'll appreciate the fact that anybody who comes into the door is not coming, leaving their family behind, leaving their uh, issues behind. They're coming with them. And how do you factor that into the workspace? Just like employees are factoring work into their living space. We need to become a lot more conscious of what that means for work-life balance going forward. What does it mean for diversity going forward? I think it's a profound moment. I think we are not... The good news is we've gone through the mechanics and we have taken some reflex action quickly. Now is the time for us to actually pause and reflect, not just act on reflections so that we are in a position to use this movement as a learning opportunity going forward. We did not do much of that in 9-11. One parallel I have is 9-11 because at nine, after 9-11, the world went through again a similar process where altruism was at its peak, volunteerism was at its peak. But we forgot that soon after we, um, in, in fact, about a year, hopefully this time around, we will all collectively learn from what we're going through. Uh, that's beautiful. You shared here about like the shifts in the winds that may be even uh, shaped by inclusion and, you know, what's happening there. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
I want to share uh, one uh, other piece of news, which uh, I think we'll all find interesting. And this is uh, about what's happening, um, you know, what's happening in the world. I, I was talking about how leaders have been struggling with how to really uh, brew confidence, right, in us about their ability to understand and lead us, you know, through a time like this. And here's a fascinating article in Forbes about the countries that seemingly are having the best coronavirus responses seem to all have women leaders. Maybe there's, uh, maybe there's something there. I certainly encourage all of us to read this article if you haven't read it. It's got some really fascinating, you know, fascinating, uh, uh, you know, points in it. One of them was, uh, for example, um, yeah, the prime minister of, uh, I think it was Denmark, if I have it right, basically holding a news conference on television that was exclusively for children. No adults were allowed there. She just wanted to hear from children on what their you know, concerns and issues were at a time like this, because she was their leader, just like she was the adults leader. We never talked to the children, right? What a, what a beautiful idea, right? And coming from someone who's probably a mom, right, if I recall, and who has probably attuned herself, right, to playing that role for all the kids of her country. I thought that was, that was really inspiring. Can you imagine, for instance, right now, I saw a note about what do we do for children coming to office day, right? This is the time when uh, every most organizations have a day when the children come and visit the office. What if we were to do something similar? What if the CEO of the company or the manager of the team says, I'm going to have a conversation with all your children? What kind of an impact that would have in terms of the employees feeling the broader reach of the organization and the organization and the leadership enveloping the larger family. Beautiful. Rabu, we got to start wrapping up. And while it breaks my heart, the um, the saving grace for me is that, um, you know, I, uh, I am so keen and looking forward to having you be back, you know, in this show. Rabu, if we were to summarize, you know, the themes that we've evoked here, right? So um, what would those be? At a high level, we talk about how many different challenges. It's a perfect storm. So many different dimensions of life coming together. Home, school, work, health financial crisis, economic uncertainty, et cetera. And given that, what are some of the most important things you have to keep in mind about people? So if you had to summarize that, what would you say you know, the three or four key themes are from what we talked about today? I think, uh, let me hazard a guess here uh, based on what the conversation took place over the last one hour. First is I think, uh, let's make sure that we start with the question, not with the answer, because we really don't have a playbook. But having said that, when you don't have a playbook, you need to go within yourself to go deep within yourself to figure things out. We are not in a mode of finding things out. We are in a mode of figuring things out. And I think when you do that, you have to keep the heart and the head together. That's one important message I would leave us with. The second thing is homework, working from home and working from office are two different things. Don't mix the two. Understand the implications of it and make sure that we create and facilitate the possibilities of optimizing in both sense, working from home and working from office in new ways, because out of this tough period comes creativity and new thoughts and new ideas. We can learn from the moment. I think on home working and on office working, we can do that. I think the third thing is um, keep in mind, these are times when you have to make really tough calls, but are you doing it with grace? Are you doing it with finesse? Are you elevating people as you go through the journey or are you pulling them back? Are you optimizing for their skills or are you giving, making them give their best is another question I would leave with the people. I think finally we need to keep in mind that um, out of this phase comes a new phase and then there will be 
uh, a, a new world coming out of this. And I hope we will remember what we went through and not lose the social solidarity. Right. I'm going to give you one example, one story. I saw a day for yesterday, a six year old and a grandmother who was in her 80s. Uh, the story was that these two go to the post boxes in the local area every day. And what they do, the pickup or the drop for the post is 11 o'clock in the morning. At 10.30, they go and religiously clean the post boxes because they want, they want to sanitize the post boxes before, before the postal worker comes and delivers the post. And what they are saying is, this is how I can make a little bit of a difference in the life of the postal worker. If each of us carry that same sentiment as a six-year-old, I think we can collectively make a better humanity. And that's our aspiration. At the end of the day, what we have learned this during these times is the fact that collectively we are trying to figure things out. We are trying to make meaning and we are better off for it, with it. And hopefully that stays. We don't forget it. Yeah. Thank you, Raghu. That's a very inspiring, um, you know, coda, you know, as a thought. Just to build on that last theme of what you've said, because yes, you're right. There's so many deeper and more tactical insights that, you know, we've just talked about around meaning making and around sensitization to employee situations at home, etc. But Raghu, this last point that you're making, don't you think that it's uh, quite amazing, amazing, <laughs> right? The speed and the discipline with which humanity has changed some of its habits, both at the individual level, the organizational level, the national level, and the global level, right? You know, it was so hard to tell our kids to stay at home. It was so hard to resist, like going out to the bars every Friday, right? It was so hard to like wash our hands all the time, right? And suddenly humanity is towing that line. You know, we're all washing our hands. We're okay. You want to maintain social distancing? I'll do that. You want me to stay at home? I'll do that. I'll do anything to get coronavirus out of my hair, right? And, uh, and then, of course, collectively, right, organizations, the kind of transformations and transitions, et cetera, they've been able to make in the working conditions and how they're working, et cetera, redeploying the workforce, like you said, with Virgin, doesn't, like for somebody who has helped build and support humongous bureaucracies in large organizations, which just like inevitably seem to be the need when you grow that large, don't you see this as like almost like a fresh new wind that is blowing through society, invoking and waking us up to the like, guys, we can change and transform and get things done much faster than what the, the red tape is all about in the past. For me, that's the only way we can pay homage to people who have sacrificed their lives during this moment by being better for the future stakeholders, our children. So you're absolutely right. Uh, as we go through changes and as we are willing to change overnight, it's a testimony to human resilience, but it's also a tribute to people who are giving their lives up during this moment, right? But also, what can we do to leave the world better for our children today at an organization level, at a national level, at an individual level? That's the story of the six-year-old and the grandmother, the grandmother teaching the six-year-old that I can leave a world that is better for you and you can join and participate in that. And for me, listen, at this point in time, what I want to say is there is a new sense of love. There is a new sense of community. There is a new sense of purpose and meaning that we hope we never lose. Against the bleakness of what we are going through, there is a rainbow of possibilities. And that's the rainbow we need to aspire to catch. Yeah, that's that's so beautiful. Um, this is Raghu, not just the uh, executive, it's Raghu the, the poet. Uh, Raghu, that's such a beautiful note to end this conversation with you. So a big heartfelt expression of gratitude from all of us for making the time, 
sharing your heart, your spirit, your thought, your experience with us today. And we very much look forward to having you back with us, Raghu. Thank, Thank you. you. Much appreciated.